actually have colleagues that will say to me, yeah, Rebecca, what you're talking about is a good issue, but mm, the senator that introduced it, they're on my blacklist. I'll never get anything out of my committee ever. If their name's on it, it's dead. That's Rebecca Warren, a Michigan state senator from the 18th district. Considered by some to be the most liberal member of the Michigan State Senate, after all, Ann Arbor, the home of the University of Michigan, is in her district, Senator Warren is in fact known for her ability and her willingness to reach across the aisle. By working effectively with Republicans on the Senate, Warren has been able to champion bipartisan legislation on human rights and the environment. You're about to listen to an address that Warren gave to the Howenstein Center's Cook Leadership Academy as part of the Center's Wheelhouse Talk series. Warren talks about the work of maintaining her convictions, her principles, while trying to find some common ground and common purpose with folks on the other side of the aisle. One impediment to honest dialogue, Warren points out, is the trend of partisan redistricting. Recorded not long before election 2016, Warren's address is interesting in the way she gestures toward growing partisanship in Michigan as well as in the nation. Nevertheless, she, Warren, seems optimistic about the willingness of members of the state Senate to see beyond partisan divides and acknowledge the absolute necessity of working productively together. The spirit of bipartisanship has allowed Warren to shepherd bills, strengthening human trafficking laws, helping nursing mothers, as well as helping her negotiate legislation banning Great Lakes water diversion. She talks about some of these projects. We'll drop you in at the beginning of Senator Warren's talk where she describes an interview she had with a local news source, if you're from Grand Rapids, you'll know Wood TV, about how she manages to stick with her principles on the left as well as get, thing done, get things done Excuse me, in the Senate. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Well, thank you very much. It is such a pleasure to be with you today. I have not had many opportunities yet to be uh, on Grand Valley's campus, so it was wonderful to get this invitation and to get to see uh, the amazing things that are happening in Grand Rapids. What an exciting time. The city seems to be growing and, and changing, and I hear from friends all around the country that they're reading about our art and culture and job creation, all the exciting things that are going on here. So thank you for the invitation uh, to be part of this series. Um, and the particular bent that I want to bring today is, um, you heard just a little bit uh, in, the, in my bio about the very unusual distinction that I have of both being one of the more polar opposite ends of the political spectrum, but also somebody who's been able to negotiate to get a lot done. And part of that really is through, I think, the way that I interface with other people. And the idea of civility in politics is something that's been really important to me. So I want to start, I want to start by first saying to the fellows of the Cook Leadership Academy, what an exciting program that you, at the age you're at, whether you're undergrads or grad students, are already thinking about wanting to be leaders and what that means to you in the future. I think a lot of us that end up in positions where other people define us as leaders um, fall into them in unusual ways. So it wasn't planful for me in, to end up in this position where now some people call me a leader and refer to me in that way. Um, so I, I congratulate you on taking steps to, to try to build a path to do something to change our world, to make your little corner of it a little bit better. And I hope that some of the thoughts that I share today will be meaningful to some of you. 
So the place that I want to start here, President John F. Kennedy, at the height of the Cold War, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, was quoted as saying, civility is not a sign of weakness, and sincerity is always subject to proof. I think in our world, especially mine, the elected uh, world that I serve in, in the state legislature, some people think of civility as a weakness. That somehow if you find a way to work with people on the other side of the aisle, or people who you might not see eye to eye with on many issues, that somehow you're weak, that somehow you're caving, that somehow you're not holding true to your values. And it sounds a little bit trite, but I think sometimes it's important for us to really think about the true definition of words. And the word civility has a really basic definition, right? Courtesy, politeness, respect, good manners, right? Wait, we should strive for civility in more of what we do every day, not just work in politics, but in lots of things in life. And if one president 60 years ago could say, civility is not a sign of weakness, then someone in my position in the Michigan legislature right now can certainly continue that work. So there's an organization in Lansing called Inside Michigan Politics. It's a, it's a newsletter that writes about what happens in the political sphere in Michigan, mostly the state level and above. They do some local work as well. Um, and every year they put out a ranking of the members of the Michigan legislature. So by way of introducing myself to you here, uh, this was recently uh, put out in December, just last month. For the fifth straight year, State Senator Rebecca Warren, Democrat from Ann Arbor, is the chambers, the Senate's most liberal member. No other senator has achieved this fate in the almost three decades that Inside Michigan Politics has been tracking votes. People talk about, in politics, the other side of the aisle, right? You hear this all the time. And, and if you've ever had a chance to visit our capital in Lansing, you will see that this is not just, it's not just something we say, it's not just a slogan, it's literally where people sit. There is a center aisle, the Democrats sit on the left of that aisle, the Republicans sit on the right of that aisle. And when you have situations like you do now where you have more Republicans in the state Senate than you have Democrats, some of the Republicans have to sit on the left side of the aisle. But if you take that idea, that visual of a center, a right and a left of the aisle, you've got people who are pretty like, you know, kind of moderate in the middle, and then you have people who are, you know, a little bit over here leaning to the left and a little bit over here. And if you like try to figure out where I am on this stage, I would be somewhere way over here because for the entire, this is the 10th year that I've been serving in the state legislature, I have been that most liberal member of the chamber I've served in every single year save one. So to a lot of people who share the values that I have on social justice and environmental protection and what I think of our sensible gun policies and women's rights and reproductive freedom of choice, for a lot of those issues, I am a standard bearer. People look to me to say, how does Senator Warren feel about these issues? How does Rebecca Warren feel about these issues? This is important to me. And I can guarantee you that there's not a single vote in Lansing, if you look at the votes that are tracked by Inside Michigan Politics or any other organization, where you will see me ever compromising on those things that are important to me. And they're things that are in just, I think, you know, bred into you from, from how you grew up, what you've experienced. And it's a core set of values that are so strong that there's absolutely nothing that could shake me off of them. 
not political pressure, not threats, not concern about a primary or losing a race, because to me, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I grew up in a pretty small town in mid-Michigan. My father is a man of faith, my mother was a nurse. And I sometimes surprise people when they find out that I'm such a religious person. And they're like, but you're liberal and you're this person of faith. How does this make sense? I said, I come to my values because of my faith, not in spite of them. And it surprises people sometimes. But there's so much in, in our Judeo-Christian tradition that says our job is to take care of those who are less fortunate. Widows and orphans, people who are struggling, we're supposed to help our fellow brothers and sisters. I'm liberal on human rights policies because of my faith. We're supposed to be stewards of our natural world and the environment. And in Michigan, what that means to most of us is the shape of our state. Right? How many times have we done this? The shape of our state, where we live. The shape of our state is what it is because we're surrounded by the largest body of fresh water on this planet. We have 90% of the whole nation's fresh surface water in our backyard, and we are jointly stewards of that. I do the work that I do on the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes Compact, serving on the Great Lakes Commission because of my faith, not in spite of it. And so, here I am, the left of the left, and I, the reason that I ended up invited here, and you can hear his version of the story a little bit, but the good director um, was the person, I think, who, you're, who sort of pointed out that I'd be a person that could be interesting to bring to, to this series. Um, I did an interview not that long ago, maybe six or seven months ago, with a reporter from Wood TV, a local TV station to many of you, and he said, and the reason he asked for the interview was he said, so Rebecca, you're... Here you are, left of the left, most progressive, and I think you could say, you know, take, take leaning out of it, but most people who are on the political fringes, if you're at the polls, either way, left or right, conservative, liberal, most of those folks tend to be seen as gadflies, as people who don't accomplish much, as people who just muck up the works and, and are happy to say no but not find solutions, folks who are often irrelevant in the process. They might make noise, but don't make change. And Rick Albin, who did that interview with me, um, said, how, how do you do it? How do you both maintain this set of values where nobody even often comes close to the uh, sort of perfection of liberal <laughs> votes that you have, and also have, in some sessions, the most bills signed into law by any member of the minority party in either chamber. So that's my distinction, my designation. And I said, well, it, it's not something that I set out planfully to do. It's not something that I, again, even that, that question of how do you become a leader and end up in a position like this, you know, everybody has a path. But the path that I walk on every day in my legislative life, and I've had the chance, um, I served in the House of Representatives for four years. Um, I was elected in 2006 there to be just Ann Arbor's state representative. Then in 2010, when the Senate seat was open uh, in my county, I ran for that and won. And so now I represent not just Ann Arbor, but the bulk of the population of Washtenaw County. So Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, Saline, Milan, the townships around them. Um, and I served four years in the House in the majority. My party was in control, and I was one of just two first-term women who got a gavel to chair a committee when I got elected. 
and I got the gavel uh, to the Great Lakes and Environment Committee. I'm going to talk for just a second about the impact of term limits. So Michigan, as many of you may know, has some of the most restrictive term limits on state legislators of any state in the nation. They're lifetime bans. You can run for two three-year terms in the House and two four-year terms in the Senate. So if you could stack it up just right, you could serve 14 years. Most people, though, have trouble doing that because of, like, like I did, I, my seat was open after the end of my second term to run for the Senate seat. So I didn't serve six years. I only served four years in the House and likely won't go back. So likely I'll end up only with 12 years of service at the state level instead of the 14 that others will get. But in this era of term limits, people who are brand new to the legislature, like I was, I was a freshman lawmaker, and I got this gavel to chair Great Lakes and the Environment, and I'm absolutely humble enough to say I had zero credentials to be there, not one. I didn't have a background in environmental science. I hadn't been active in some natural resource protection issue in my local community. I literally think, and I would say it if he was standing here beside me, my speaker said, okay, Rebecca's got this experience. I had been a staff member and had been an advocate and had been involved in, in Lansing politics since I was 21 years old. I got my first job right out of my undergrad working for one of my predecessors. So Rebecca's got this experience. She understands the process. We want her to run something and she's a liberal woman from Ann Arbor. So she must hug trees and wear Birkenstocks and smoke pots. So we're gonna give her the Environment Committee gavel because that just has gotta be what she's about. And I was so, as kind of a perfectionist, overachieving kind of student, I was so nervous about letting down my speaker who had faith in me to give me that gavel. And I certainly did not wanna embarrass myself not knowing what I was doing. So I spent three months in the beginning of that first year in the house just literally taking a crash course on everything that was happening in the environment and natural resource protection fields in this state and in our region, in the Great Lakes region. And, and it's become an area of expertise for me. It's something I've worked a lot on since that moment. But you think about that in any other place in your life. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, my car doesn't sound right. I think I want to go to the brand new mechanic that just got their certificate and registered with the state who's never worked on my car before ever. I want to go to that person because I think a fresh face is the right face. <laughs> my mom's about to have heart surgery. So what I really want is a brand new physician right out of school who just got past their boards and has never done a single heart surgery before. That's what I want as the person who's going to operate on my mom. But in government, for some reason, we have this idea that we want people to serve a very short period of time, out with those, you know, throw the bums out, bring the new folks in, they'll be our new bums in a couple more years, but we forget that. And state government in Michigan is a $53 billion annual enterprise. This is big business. In addition to being our, our safety net, our protector, the people that make these decisions that impact our daily lives in so many ways that we often have to even slow down to think about how many different ways. I go into a lot of schools and talk to the littlest of, of elementary school children and talk to them about all the different ways just on their drive to school that state government affects them as kindergartners from 
whether or not their roads are plowed, to the speed limits that are set, to whether their parent or nanny or the bus driver has a license and we take, you know, make sure that they know how to drive well and that they're not injuring them, whether they're in a booster seat or a car seat, how much money their school has to operate, what kind of food they're eating in the cafeteria that they're in in school, what they're studying, how many days a week they're going to school, how many hours a year they're going to school, whether they go all year long. And it's one of my favorite exercises to do with the really little ones. What do you think of the idea of full year school? Some states and some countries are going to this where you don't get a summer break anymore, you go all year long. They don't support it. But the teachers are always like, it's a good idea. But state government touches us in so many different ways, and yet we send these brand new groups of folks to Lansing every so many years. And people are really starting from scratch. So you took somebody like me who had a gavel to chair a committee but really not, um, again, humble enough to totally admit I did not have the expertise to be there. Um, but I live my life, I live my professional life, like I live my personal life really at the most basic level, starting with the golden rule. Right? I treat people how I want to be treated. And I don't think that I have the answers to everything. I, I know, in fact, I don't. And I know lots of good ideas come from every source. So in my first year as the chair of the Great Lakes Environment Committee in the House, I had the opportunity to work with somebody from, from West Michigan, from south of here, but from the Holland area. Um, Representative Arlen Mikoff was his name. He was a, a state rep from, from Holland, he had that, that area. And he was my vice chair, so he was the minority member. And he would, you know, he'd, we'd take up bills, and I get to set the agenda. Being in the majority is much better than being in the minority, let's just be clear. So, you know, I got to set an agenda for a committee every week. I got to decide what bills were going to be taken up. And as my, my minority vice chair, Representative Mikoff would bring ideas to me and he'd say, hey, I want to I have these amendments heard. I want people to be able to talk about them. And I always let, I always made sure they had a second to their amendments so that they could be heard. I always made sure we considered them. And I mean, to be honest, it's, it's a real process. But when you're in the majority, you get to decide whether stuff wins or loses, whether it passes or fails. So there's lots of times where I had to say, I'm sorry, Arlen, it's, it's not gonna happen today. Or he's like, well, I need a little more time. I'm sorry, I gotta roll you today because my speaker wants us on the House floor this afternoon. But I was always honest and straightforward. And I always let their folks have votes on their amendments, even if they got voted down. And it's not something I planfully did because I could see into the future to find out that now in my daily life, Representative Arlen Mikoff has become Senate Majority Leader Arlen Mikoff, who is the boss of the boss of everything that I do every day. I had no idea that was going to happen. But if he were standing here beside me, and I've heard him do it several times, he would say, when Rebecca was in control and she could have been awful to me, she never was. She treated me with respect. She met me wherever I needed to be met. She was honest. She was open. And I treat her the same way now. And so one of those life lessons where you just realize everything does come around. And today's gavel holder committee chair is tomorrow's super minority member, which is what I am, super minority member in the Senate. And there's something that's happening in a lot of states around the country and in Congress as well that we do see this polarization of Americans when it comes to politics. We see, you look at these graphs, you see the number of folks who are consistently sort of uh, 
voting liberal, considering themselves liberal, considering themselves conservative. And you see, starting over here on the left, this 1994, all this purple in the middle is, you know, where most people were falling at that time is somewhere in the middle. And I think, honestly, if you talk to most people around this state, at least, I find more people actually really do live their lives somewhere in here. They lean a little to the left on some things, they lean a little to the right on some things because of their own experience or whatever they have been through. But most people are somewhere, I think, as Michiganders, somewhere in the middle. But you look at who's getting elected increasingly, here and now here, 2014, increasingly the people that we're sending to represent us in both Lansing and Washington are going farther and farther to the outside edges. And why is that? It's not just term limits. I mean, term limits, I think, is a piece of it. But nationally, you know, in Congress, we don't, have, we don't have term limits. But I think what's happening is that we've had, also, we've had pretty partisan redistricting at both the state and federal levels. And so what, where most people are actually getting elected, so for me, I, I represent an incredibly democratic area. My House seat, my Senate seat, incredibly democratic. It would take a very unusual, unusual thing to happen for a Republican to win the seat that I represent. And on the other side of the aisle, there are seats all over the state that are so red that it would be almost impossible for a Democrat to win. And so what happens is then all the contests are in August. Our primary elections are the first Tuesday after the first Monday in August. And in August, we're deciding who our member of Congress is going to be, who our state representative or state senator is going to be, because the November election truly is meaningless when you're in a 75, 80, 90, 95% base district for your party. And so what it takes to win that primary in August is often to be more conservative than all of your opponents in a Republican primary, or to be more liberal than all of your opponents in a Democratic primary. And so we're literally starting with a group of people who are much more at those polls and sometimes much more strident, right? And so it does make it a lot harder to get things done. So I was one of those people. I, 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 ran to the, I ran to the left. I mean, it's, it's my values anyway. And I would say one more time, I guess, I, I started this out and I didn't quite finish it. For me, and I, I, I'm not being judgmental about the people I serve with. Everybody comes to this work in different ways. And we have a true citizen legislature. So I serve every day with folks who have been doctors, uh, accountants, lawyers, stay-at-home parents, nurses somebody who drove a log truck for a living, somebody who was a farmer. We have a true citizen legislature. And so people make different decisions about how they come to office and, and what they do when they get there. But when we get there, I think the job that people want us to do is to work on behalf of everyone in the state. And I think what, what people want is for us to do something every day that, make, that moves our state forward, that is really doing something that makes our state better, stronger, economically, uh, our schools, our environment. People really do want us to be making changes that make the state better. And so I go to Lansing, and I'll be honest, I, I, have, this, I have this set of core values, and I couldn't run in a lot of places around the state because I wouldn't be able to represent the people, right? I'm, I'm lucky, some people say I'm lucky because I represent Ann Arbor and those are the values that I have. But other people make choices, and, and again, it's not to be judgmental, but people do make choices, and I have colleagues who will 
put their finger into the wind and look at the polls and read the tea leaves and figure out where they think they should be on an issue. And for me, it just is. I can't fake it. If it's, if it's not something I believe in, I can't put my name beside it. And you have to remember in our world now, every single thing we do, every vote we take, everything we say in committee, everything we say on the floor is our record forever. There's a journal that's printed every day that people search and put on social media and cover in the newspaper that says, roll call vote 307, Senator Warren voted aye, or Senator Warren voted nay, and it's your voting record forever. And you don't have a chance to say, oh, but I traded this for this, or I got this in my district for that. What you have is a voting record forever. So for me, it's just non-negotiable. And yet, I serve with people that I don't agree with on a lot of issues. And in fact, there are some colleagues that I only agree with 10% of the time, maybe? Some I only agree with 1% of the time, maybe? And so for me, what, what I have, I have to keep first and foremost in my mind that the people of the 18th district that sent me to Lansing and the people of the whole state, I think, at some level, want us to be moving the state forward. So I kind of have to, I visualize putting my blinders on. And colleague to my left or colleague to my right might have done something yesterday or earlier this morning that I thought was the most ill-thought-out idea that I've ever heard. I might have thought that it had unintended consequences or intended consequences that were so devastating and ridiculous that you almost wanted to shake your head like, what? Where did that come from? Are you kidding me? But when I find something that I can work with them on, I put those blinders on, and I forget what ridiculous thing that I thought they said before, or I forget, make myself deprioritize where we don't agree to say, what can we do together to move the state forward? And part of how I do that is getting back to this idea of civility. So I've been elected for 10 years at the state level, and there's not a single place you will find me quoted in public calling one of my colleagues a name. That sounds like a really low bar, but it's not in my world. <laughs> That's not in my world, right? It is not uncommon now for us in politics in America to not just say, people of good conscience can disagree. People who are smart and have the same set of facts can disagree. People who see the same end game can see completely different paths to getting to that end. We don't say that anymore. What we say now is, you don't agree, you're wrong. You're stupid, you're uninformed, you're ridiculous, you're a crook, you're lazy, you're whatever. I mean, you read the stuff that people say on social media, in, in the news media, in the quasi-journalism that we have in a lot of these online publications now, you hear people calling our colleagues out by name and ascribing really awful intent to them for the ideas that they come up with. And it's interesting to, to note that um, politics is very personal, of course, but you think in some ways, if you get to the level of elected service that I am, that you have to kind of get a little bit of a thicker skin. It kind of must you know, get calloused over time and you grow a little bit stronger. Um, but I serve with a lot of people with very thin skin, right? And if you tell somebody someday that their idea is ridiculous or ill thought out or that they're stupid or that they're crazy or that they're a crook, funny, but they don't want to work with you. 
They really don't. And I actually have colleagues that will say to me, yeah, Rebecca, what you're talking about is a good issue, but mm, the senator that introduced it, they're on my blacklist. They'll never get anything out of my committee ever. If their name's on it, it's dead. I'm like, because of that thing they said in 2007? Yes. Oh, okay. So again, not something I thought out to do, not something I could have like had a crystal ball and looked forward and said, gosh, if I call one of my colleagues a really bad name, they're probably not gonna move my bills, so I better not do it. Didn't do that. But I don't want people calling me names, so it's sort of that living by the golden rule thing. And so now that I have done that, I have seen it as a personal business, right? It's a personality business, the personal business. And these people, I think of sometimes 148 members, 110 members of the House, 38 members of the Senate, 148 legislators, and a governor. I think of them as my family. And you all know, there's members of your family that are amazing and wonderful and you can count on to be there for you no matter what you do. And there's members of your family that are going to come to you only when they need something. And they want you to bail them out of whatever trouble they're in or whatever problem that they have um, you know, fallen into that they need a little helping hand. And you have family members that you know how to make them laugh. And you have family members that you know how to make them mad. And you have family members that fill all those roles. And that's how I think of my work in the legislature. And at the end of the day, to move things forward, there's what we call the Lansing zip code. 56, 20, and 1. 56 votes in the House, 20 votes in the Senate, and one governor to sign or veto is what determines whether your policy lives or dies. And it can be a different 56, 20 every single time. The one doesn't change, or rarely. Every once in a while, the lieutenant governor will sign something instead of the governor. But the 56 and 20, it doesn't matter what coalition you build to get there. It doesn't matter if it's all people who think like you or look like you or act like you. You can put it together in any way. But I've invested in the people I work with, and so I know, for the most part, what they care about. And I know if I have an issue like this. I worked for five years of my legislative career to try to get some affirmative protections for nursing mothers in this state. Michigan was one of a small handful of states that had no affirmative protection. So we had moms across the state that were reporting really, really horrible stories about being kicked off public transportation, being asked to leave places of public accommodation, shopping centers, restaurants, being asked to go feed their children in a restroom. Would you want to take your lunch to the bathroom to eat it in a public bathroom? Take your sandwich out and have that in the bathroom? I don't think so. So we've got our most vulnerable little, little tiny Michiganders that were being treated in a lot of ways um, like second-class citizens, like we weren't going to let moms feed them. And we know there's a body of evidence that is indisputable now that says that breastfeeding is the healthiest option for both our moms and our babies to prevent sickness, to get moms back into the weight that they had before they were pregnant to keep their immunity up, to keep the baby's immunity up. So we want to do everything we can as a society to encourage moms to nurse if they're able, as long as they are able. But women were being <coughs> discriminated against. But more than that, they were, they were scared. They were hearing stories of other people who'd been asked to leave restaurants and so they were intimidated. And so we had a group of moms that said, well, I just don't go out. Or I only go out when the baby's sleeping. So I know that you know, at this age, he'll sleep for two hours. So I'll go out after he nurses and falls asleep. I'll go out for a couple hours. And, or I won't go to certain restaurants where I know they're not supportive. 
So I worked for five years trying to put together the coalition to say, this isn't a left issue, it's not a right issue, it's not liberal, it's not conservative. People who care about women and babies are on both sides of the aisle and we should be doing everything we can. And it took finding that right person who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, who is one of those folks I don't often agree with everything that he thinks. He's a former sheriff and he's very law and order and sometimes he thinks I'm a little kooky, but this is an important issue. And we got 56, 20, and one. So the picture on the left, uh, on your left, is a group of women that came up and had a nursing at the Capitol so that they could sort of highlight to the governor and the folks that we um, work with how important this was and how many women of all ages, of all wraiths and ethnicities, of all parts of the state, geographic location. And the picture on the right is the day that the governor signed the bill. Five years of work, so you have to be relentless, you have to be tireless, you have to keep working. But it can happen. And because I'm in the super minority, it can only happen when I work with people on the other side of the aisle. One of the other issues um, that's been really important to me throughout my career is mental health. We have a lot of folks in this, in this state and honestly in this nation that are struggling with mental illness, with developmental disabilities, or with substance use disorders that are still uh, not getting the care they need, not getting the support they need, and I think too often still are being um, not talked about, sort of hidden away in a lot of people's families. And the increasing challenge that our families with children with autism spectrum disorders were facing because of the cost of providing the treatment that was needed, especially at an early age, just became this drumbeat that was getting louder and louder. We had families come and talk to me that said they were mortgaging their house, they were pulling money from their 401k, because when you are worried about your child's ability to be successful in school, to be as independent and live as independent a life as they can ever live, parents will do anything. And the evidence-based research tells us now that if we have a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder at a young age and we put kids into the kind of treatment that helps them develop the skills to be able to be successful, things like applied behavior analysis therapy, that they can start kindergarten potty trained, which for a lot of these parents was an insurmountable barrier that they could not help their children on their own learn to be potty trained, that they can learn the attention skills to be able to actually take in information, to become educated and learn. And it's really the difference between them being able to be successful in school and not. But for most of these kids at a young age, it's somewhere between 20 and 40 hours of ABA therapy that's needed in a really intensive way when they're young to help build that foundation to be successful. And it was literally costing some parents more than they brought home. And so we worked together with, um, with a, a bipartisan coalition, actually uh, someone who became a real good friend of mine um, and who's an alumni of here, an alumni of here, um, Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly. We served together in the House. We both were on a couple of committees together for, for four years while we were in the House of Representatives. And the first year I was in the Senate and he was just elected as Lieutenant Governor. So we've gotta get this done. We've gotta get this done for families. And, and what it meant was that we would 
make sure that the insurance policies would cover some of these evidence-based treatments, would cover the diagnosis, and we created a fund to help reimburse those families, those insurance companies, that we couldn't mandate at the state level what they did. So people who are self-insured, the, the ERISA plans, the big plans that have to take their direction from the federal government, not the state, we created a fund. And the idea was that if we helped fund this for a while, we would show the third-party payers the benefit of actually getting this kind of treatment and what it means in the long run for healthier kids who can be more successful as they go forward. So we passed that in 2011, became law in 2012, and we have a whole network now of providers that is developing. You have a lot of folks even graduating from this university who are doing uh, work as ABA therapists and providing this treatment. And it would not have happened, I would say it would not have happened without him, the Lieutenant Governor, and honestly he would say, and he actually put it in writing, it's on my wall, that it wouldn't happen without me because you really needed both sides to come together and say this is something really important for us to do. On the right side of the screen, let's end campus sexual assault. I was a statewide co-chair with the First Lady, Sue Snyder, of a day-long um, a day-long workshop, seminar, um, to address campus sexual assault. I think many of you know that there was a White House report that came out about a year ago now that said that there are many universities around the country, and unfortunately three in Michigan, one that I represent, the University of Michigan, Michigan State University, and unfortunately this one, that were getting docked a little bit by Title IX, by the federal government, for the policies and procedures they had in place for dealing with alleged sexual assaults, how those were being investigated, how people were being treated, and so a group of us, and I had had, had legislation for years um, on different aspects of, of domestic and sexual violence and, and things that I think the state government can do to be supportive. And the First Lady really wanted to be involved as well. So again, bipartisan, two, two members of the House, two members of the Senate, one of each party and the Republican First Lady, put this together and we got the presidents of all of the Michigan universities and colleges to come for a first a, a planning meeting and then to this seminar, and the kinds of energy that was put together by having administrators and students and law enforcement, public safety and physicians and Title IX coordinators, women's centers coordinators, coming together saying, how can we do better and how can we all help each other? Because this is not about blame. This is not about holding somebody, you know, uh, holding them up as a bad example as much as it is saying, the fact that one in five women in this country will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime is a statistic that should make us all cringe. And it's something we all should be committed to doing something different about, and we all have to work together. Bipartisan men and women, we all have to work together to change this. And so we were able to get into the budget just a few months later, $500,000 of money to go directly to these universities, to different groups, to the, some to student groups, some to uh, you know, the university themselves for certain programs, to really make positive change. Some campuses needed better lighting. There were places on campus that were just too dark and too uh, accessible for bad things to happen. Some campuses needed to upgrade technology. 
that you know we all have our smartphones these days and to have the, the kind of technology where you can get a safe ride or you can let your friends know where you are so that you have somebody watching out for you if you're leaving late, whether you're studying or socializing, that somebody can make sure they know where you are so that you can get the help that you need. And again, it's something that never would have happened in this climate without working with people on both sides of the aisle. So the picture on the left is, is Arlen Mikoff that I've talked about a couple of times, who uh, is now, as I said, the, the Senate Majority Leader. His birthday is three days after mine. And so this is that part where I said about just being human, right? We disagree, Arlen and I disagree on a lot of issues. But our birthdays are three days apart and for, oh gosh, maybe six years now, we have a joint birthday celebration. It's, it's not uncommon for us to bring, just like in elementary school, bring cake or cupcakes and ice cream for your birthday. So we still do that for our colleagues in the legislature. And we've done it together for the last six years. Um, and it's, you know, it's just one of those things that um, it just reminds people that we can fight about issues, we can have disagreements about what we think the best way to move the state forward is, but we also can just be people who celebrate birthdays together and enjoy spending that time together. And the picture on, the, on your right is, that is 100% uh, of the Senate Women's Caucus. 38 members, four women. Those are my, my three colleagues. And my three colleagues are all Republicans. I am literally the only female Democrat in the Michigan Senate. That's a statistic that has not been true since the 1980s. Um, and it's lonely, but, uh, but I have good friends on both sides of the aisle. But, um, and that was Go Red for Women Month, celebrating, um, you know, uh, kind of encouraging women to make sure that they're taking care of their health and getting their hearts checked and knowing the symptoms and signs of heart disease um, to try to protect their health. So we all wore red and did a speech on the floor and did some, uh, some proclamations to make sure that we're getting the message out for supporting each other as women um, and combating heart disease, which is the number one killer of women in Michigan. So, uh, you know, you, you find fun things to do together that also have a good end, but just in building relationships. So this is um, a kind of a fun visual of, as I just said, so this one on the left here is the 38 members of the Michigan Senate. Those four red, red dots are the four women <laughs> that you just saw the picture. The House right now has 107 members, although it technically has 110 members. We have three vacant seats right now. Um, one kind of here in your backyard because uh, State Representative Brandon Dillon uh, resigned his office to become the Michigan State uh, Democratic Party Chair. And two members of the Republican Caucus uh, kind of got booted out by their colleagues. Maybe you heard that story too. Um, so they're down to 107 members right now. They're in the middle of that special election to replace them right now. So they'll be back up to full 110 uh, sometime in the next couple months. But that's the number of women, only 26 women out of the 107 who are there right now uh, as members of the House of Representatives. And I point that out to say, it's not as diverse of a group of people as you'd really want it to be. And when term limits was uh, an idea that was starting to unfold around the nation, it was really sold in a lot of states. And these were ballot initiatives, as some of you might remember. This is 1992 in Michigan, the ballot initiative was on the ballot to, to pass term limits. It was passing in lots of states around the country at that time. And it was really sold as this idea that you would, if you got rid of the incumbency protection that was inherent in not having term limits. And if you looked at the legislature, state legislatures around the country then, they, were, they tended to be made up of a lot of folks who were older, who were male, and who were white. 
So if you get rid of that incumbency protection, the idea was that you would pave the path for more younger candidates, for more female candidates, and more candidates of color to actually win some of these seats. Well, that experiment has been happening in our state since 1992, and what's actually happened is that we're whiter, we're older, we're richer, and we're more male. So the experiment has really completely failed. And so I have people who ask me sometimes, I say, like, Rebecca, like, why, why do you focus on the number of women that are serving? Like, do you think like, there's not enough focus on women's issues? Do you think if you had more women elected, they'd focus more on women issues? And I always said, I'm like, what does that mean to you? What do you think are women's issues? Is this a woman's issue? That right now in this state, we're one of the worst in the nation, that women make 77 cents on the dollar, white women make 77 cents on the dollar for what their white male counterparts make, that for women of color it's even worse, that African American women only make 64 cents on the dollar for what their counterparts make, and that Latina women make only 54 cents. Are those just women's issues? See, I argue that that's not just a because whether you're a woman, single, head of household, trying to take care of your kids, if you're bringing home 30% less than your male counterparts, or 50% less, or 40% less, you have less money to buy clothes, to pay for food, to keep a roof over the heads of your kids, and whether that's a rent or a mortgage payment. And if you're married, and if you're in a, a marriage as one man and one woman, and you're still only bringing home 50, 60, 70% of what your husband is bringing home, that impacts your whole family. And if you're a two-woman household, then you're bringing home a lot less than what two men might be bringing home. So I think these issues that people talk about, and they say, well, women, uh, women's issues, education, senior issues, the environment, you know, women's reproductive health, these are women's issues. And I just argue that any one of those that you bring forward are really everybody's issues. Even if women do tend to end up being the ones who take care of more of, of our parents as they age and sometimes our partner's parents as they age, it matters to everybody that we have good senior care and a safety net. So these are everybody's issues. And it's not just that they, it's not just that I think that we have, you know, issues that impact all of us that women do talk about, but there's actual studies now that have been done in the last few years that prove that women are more effective legislators than men. They're more productive legislators than men. We literally get more stuff done than our male counterparts do in the legislature. 30% more, to be clear. We get more bills passed, and the research that's been done on this really attributes it to women's ability to work together, to work across the aisle, to work uh, in a transformational way instead of a transactional way, which a lot more men tend to use that leadership style. And I use the example, to back up for one second to look at this slide. Many of you have now heard this, this number, or maybe seen these pictures. For the first time now in our history as Americans, we have 100, over 100 women serving in Congress. And breaking that number 100 was amazing. And 435 members of the House, 100 senators, so of 535 members of the United States Congress, 100 women, that's about 
we're 51% of the nation's population, so we got a long way to go still, but that was an important barrier, I think, for us to break. And although some of you might agree with a joke that I heard recently, which was, what's the opposite of progress? Congress. <laughs> you might agree with that. But when you look at the stuff that's actually happening in Congress, when something is happening in Congress, it's often led by women. And many of us remember just a couple of years ago when there was a threat, a real significant threat of a government shutdown over the question of whether healthcare should be a right of every American or a privilege of only those who can afford it. It was a bipartisan group of women in the House and the Senate that came together and said, it's more important that we find solutions than duck and cover in ideology. And you look at what's happening in Michigan on too many important policies, I think because we don't have that diversity of gender, we see a lot more things getting stalled than a lot more things getting solved. And that pay gap, it might not sound like much in the short run. If you're making 70 something cents on the dollar, or 60 cents on the dollar. But what it means, even in that top bracket, for, for professional white women, it means that over their lifetime, $530,000 less of income if they did the same job that their male counterpart did all along the path, and the same job without promotions, if you just held it constant. And what that means in retirement is really significant, because women still live longer. Women often take still take time out of the workforce to become parents, to, to have babies, and to sometimes raise them for some period of time. And so what it means is for Social Security and their ability to save for retirement, a lot of women end up with significantly less to live on for significantly longer than their male counterparts. So again, this isn't a woman's issue. It's everybody's issue. And I've had people say to me, well, the gap is closing. It's better now than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The gap is closing and market forces are working, and sooner or later, women are gonna get paid the same as men for the same work. But if it's closing at the rate that it's closing now, it would literally take 71 years for it to close completely. It would be 2086 before women and men were paid the same amount for the same work if we let it close naturally. I feel like this is the kind of space that government can get involved in and try to make a change that matters to all of us. And so I'm going to keep working, and I'm going to keep trying to be civil, and I'm going to keep treating people the way that I want to be treated. And if that means that people call me a leader now, if that means that I have the opportunity to work on issues that I never expected at a level I never expected to be able to, I call that success. And I hope that those of you in the audience who are starting to build your careers and thinking about leadership will take this idea that People really can come from completely different places and have really different values, but can really still care about this state, about our neighborhoods, about what matters to us. And that finding ways to work together instead of just throwing bombs is really better for all of us. Thank you.
Either absolutely no questions or people really want to get out of here. Mm -hmm. I thank you for um, coming to speak with us to this afternoon. Quick question for you. What are your plans after the 14 years <laughs> at Michigan representing us? That's a very good question. I get asked that a lot. Um, yeah, I honestly just don't know yet. Um, as I said, I have, um, I, I still have two years in the house and in my back pocket. I guess I could consider that um, someday if I, if that worked out. I really don't know. I love what I do. I, I literally think I have the best job in the world um, because still after 10 years, I can say I, I get to do something every single day that makes somebody's life better. I can go home at night and look in the mirror and quantify the ways that I got to help people in my constituency with things that are incredibly personal, like when they need food assistance when something's gone wrong or their power's about to be shut off or they have a child with asthma who needs a Medicaid card to get medication so that they can breathe. And then the policy things I get to work on that are much more um, you know, much more global in some ways, like the Great Lakes Compact that you heard uh, in, in the introduction of my biography. That's a policy that will stand for a generation that really protects our Great Lakes water, uh, which is so important to all of us. So I, I love the job, and if there's a chance for me to stay working in the public sector, I think I would look for that um, because it's, it's very fulfilling for me. So I, I hope it's somewhere in the public sector. I just don't know what yet. All right, thanks for your speech and your comments. So, so in light of your leadership style, I couldn't resist asking you about Donald Trump. And, <laughs> and you know, I guess could you comment on his, not the politics, but his leadership style and, and how you think he's kind of gotten so far with, um, you know, in the light of the name calling and comments right. like that. So I think there's something, um, you know, I think there's something in all of us that, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit like the, the worst of us or the most shallow of us or something, but there is something I think a little bit in most people that, uh, that can react when something is horrible, right? That you can look at something and go, oh my God, that's terrible, but you can still laugh a little bit. And I think what, I think what Donald Trump's um, style is, is it really plays on what is the worst of us, right? To, to take a, to, to take the sense that somebody's getting something that we're not, that something's, somebody's taking something away from us, that if something, somebody has something good, that we should tear that down rather than take the idea that if somebody has something good, why aren't we working to make sure that we lift all, all boats so that everybody has that good? And I honestly believe, and I hope I'm right, that it's not a sustainable model, right? Like you can tap into that worst of people by pointing out that maybe somebody had something better than you and you had to work a little bit harder or somebody got something that should have been yours. Um, I hope though over time that there is this, this oneness that is our community as Michiganders and Americans that says, you know, the reason that we believe in democracy, the reason that we think that it's important that we help our fellow man is because we know there's an innate humanity in that that benefits us all. So I hope it's not sustainable. I hope it's something that it's a little bit new, it's a little bit outside of the normal rules of conduct, even for as challenging as things have gotten, I think, in, in politics and the lack of civility where he has gone is way outside the normal rules of engagement, if you want to call him that. And 
to me, I hope it's just one of those passing fancies, right? Like we've gotten a little bit more, um, we've gotten a little more aggressive because of social media and some of the anonymity of how we can put comments on, whether it's on the newspapers, sites, now people can, can make comments. So I think he's tapping into this sort of worst of folks that I hope just, as I said, I just hope it's not sustainable. I hope we move on beyond that and we come back to this place where what people really want is something better for all of us. We want something better for all of our kids. We want something better for our parents. We want something better for, for our environment, for the pets that we love and, and you know whatever it is that drives you. And we get there by being our best selves, not by being our worst selves. So, um, Senator Warren, um, I saw a movie the other night that impacted me a lot. It was called Vessel, and it's about women on waves. Um, these are women from the Netherlands, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with it. <clears throat> anyway, what the movie put into really clear focus for me is the abysmal state of women's reproductive health in this state in this country, but in the state of Michigan. And I saw that you used to run a women's mm -hmm. health clinic. So I'm wondering if you have, um, if you are working on those issues or behind the scenes or whatever, I would think it would be difficult, but I surely would encourage you to keep going. And um, well, I'd like to help. I don't know how, but I'm really aware that it is very—it is just shocking what's happened in the state of Michigan. Absolutely, this is, uh, as I said, in my sort of core values uh, part of the speech. To me, um, how people feel about the issue of women's reproductive choice is a values indicator. You don't have to tell me much more about yourself than to tell me whether you trust women to make the decision for themselves when and if to become a mother. Um, I don't need to know much more than that. So it is something that is absolutely important to me that I'm passionate about that I do tons of work on. Um, and I just put on my Facebook page today because it is the 43rd anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed women in this country the constitutional legal right to privacy to make healthcare decisions for themselves. Um, an amazing clip of uh, some of today's um, most popular TV actresses who read some bits of people's personal stories who had to be confronted with an unintended pregnancy or a pregnancy where something went wrong and have had to go through the decision to make a choice whether to carry a pregnancy to term or not. And, and the idea of drawing the line, and I think that's really where we are now. I mean, this women's reproductive health, women's health in general have become uh, political footballs for some folks, has really become something that is used to, to rile up a certain percentage of, of, of the base of, of, a, of the party that's not my own. And uh, I think it's time for us to draw that line in the sand as, as Democrats, as Republicans, as, as mothers, as sisters, as women to say, enough, enough. Our right to basic birth control, family planning, our right to make a decision when we're gonna become parents so that we can have the healthiest pregnancy outcomes when we decide we wanna become mothers. We have to draw the line in the sand and say enough. And I was actually just um, invited to be part of, um, of writing a national manual for state legislators around the country that just got published and just got uh, distributed to state houses and uh, around the whole country to, to talk to women legislators and pro-choice male legislators about how we do a better job of, of going uh, 
forward and being proactive because we've been playing defense for too long and we keep backing up and backing up and backing up and it's time to draw the line. It's very important. One more question. Thank you for being here today, Senator Warren. Uh, my name is Dallas Davis, and one thing that we talk about a lot here in the Cook Leadership Academy is uh, how we deal with failure. And so I was wondering if you could touch on a time in your life, granted you've been very successful, a time in your life that maybe you did fail, and then how you bounce back from that, um, and how that plays into your leadership abilities as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I started my career, as I said, I got, um, I grew up in a small town. I was good in school. I graduated at the top of my class and I got a scholarship and I ended up in Ann Arbor because I got a scholarship and I went to the University of Michigan as an undergrad. And um, I got a, first an internship and then a job. The day after I got graduated with my bachelor's, I got a job with one of my predecessors. And because of term limits, um, it was her, she was in her second year, so I served five years with her before she was term limited. So I was 26 years old when she was term limited. And I had no idea what I wanted to do next, but I knew I loved my job. And she said, um, you should run. I'm 26, what do I, I mean, I literally, and I was, um, I'm naturally a shy person that's taken a lot for me to get to this place where I can be this outgoing and, um, and do the things that I do. But at that time, I was still very, uh, very shy and very introverted. And, um, and I said, could I do that? Could I run? Could I run? And so she, she convinced me, and I had some other supporters who convinced me that I was the person at that point, I was her chief of staff, and I was running all of the constituent service and legislative uh, efforts in her office. And I really knew the district better than most anybody else could because I was doing it every day. So they, um, they convinced me to run. I also know the looking back, I wasn't, I wasn't convinced that I could win. I wasn't convinced that I had everything that it took yet. I was still in a little bit of a place of self-doubt, I think, about, um, you know, the skills that I had and the experience that I had. So I actually ran when I was 26 years old and I lost. So the first time I, I ran, I lost. And, um, and it was the best thing that ever happened, I think, to me and to my career uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, I, you learn more by losing sometimes than by winning, right? If you win, sometimes you don't know exactly what it was that happened that made it happen, right? You might have run, in my particular industry, you might have run in a wave year where everybody of your party was winning. Uh, you might have, you know, had a presidential candidate that lifted lifted you up and you know, sort of whose coattails you rode on. Um, but I know exactly what went wrong in my race uh, in when I lost the first one when I was 26 uh, because I did not target enough people. I did not. I got every vote that I set out to get, and it wasn't enough. A lot more people came out and voted. So I learned about how important it is to really get the sense of how a volatility of the electric electorate in your community. Um, and so that was really helpful. But also for me, because I was 26 years old, and I lost to a man who had been a teacher and a principal and a superintendent in the district for 30 years, is very well known to a lot of folks in the community. And I only lost by 300 votes in a you know 8,000 person turnout election for a primary. And so what it meant was people went, wait now, like, wait, wait, if we would have helped her, she could have won, she would have lost by 300 votes? Wait, wait now, who is this girl? Like, like, like the people that hadn't known me as well, I think then, and, and everything that followed after that, the next job that I got and the next things that I did. And, and then when I decided, um, I wasn't sure if I would ever run again, honestly, it's awful. It's awful losing a big public, I mean, it's a, at some level, these elections are still a popularity contest. People are picking you or picking someone else, and people didn't pick me. Even though lots of people picked me, 
you know, the 300 I needed to actually win didn't pick me. Um, and I didn't know if I would do it again. I didn't know if I could go through it again, because it's awful to lose. But when I decided to run again in 2006, and I knew what I had done wrong the first time, I didn't make that mistake again. And I won overwhelmingly, <laughs> just overwhelmingly. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's taking that time to analyze what went wrong when, when, you don't, when, when you fail at whatever you're doing and figuring out if there were things that were in your control that you could change, and sometimes they just aren't, right? Sometimes you can't, you can't win what, or can't succeed no matter what it is because the, the cards are stacked against you or it was somebody else was, was more qualified or was you know, uh, more connected or whatever. But for me, I was able to take that, to learn from it, to put into place the, the right plan to do it a second time and, um, and to, to overwhelmingly significantly win when I did it the second time. Senator Warren, and thank you all for coming today. Um, just a few reminders, we have a very busy event schedule coming up here at the Howenstein Center, and you're all invited. Uh, our next event is actually the second Wheelhouse Talk of 2016. It's three weeks from today. The speaker will be Brian Flanagan. Uh, he was once the program manager at, at our very own Cook Leadership Academy. He's now director of the Sanger Leadership Center at the University of Michigan. So uh, please come on out for that. And then on February 18th, he's back by popular demand. Historian and author H.W. Brands, the author of uh, his latest book, Reagan, The Life, will be here at an event that will hold in the Eberhard Center. Postcards with the details of both of these events are on the table out in the lobby. Uh, and at this time, uh, we'll adjourn from here. Our Cook Leadership Fellows, uh, mentors, and alumni, please join us in the Regency Room for our monthly gathering. And for the rest of you, there's coffee and treats out in the lobby, so stay with us, talk, stick around, and uh, I guess start your weekend off right. So thank you very much. That was Senator Rebecca Warren. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual progressive conservative conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. And our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to, to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and fellow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also, if you'd like, follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Fogan. This has been Common Ground.